It is indeed, and uh, 11 minutes it is after 8 p.m. This evening, uh, in our Thought Leader Thursday segment, uh, we shine a spotlight on the world of agriculture, and, uh, and no better person to help us do this than uh, Dr. Sviso Ndombele, Chief Economist of uh, the National Agricultural Marketing Council, and uh, he holds a PhD in agricultural economics from the University of Pretoria. He's the Chief Economist uh, at uh, the NAMS at the moment, and uh, responsible for trade research and economic modeling, and uh, also, I guess, uh, happens to share the public discourse much of his ideas around how we make sure that we improve productivity, yields uh, in the agricultural sector, but moreover, uh, that uh, we get uh, production to happen where it currently isn't happening and we get more of it so that we can uh, make sure that every household is uh, uh, self-sustaining when it comes to their food requirements. He joins me this evening and he's our thought leader. Dr. Ndombele, Asquamgele, Baba Gunjak. Yeah, Bonga Baba, and good evening to yourself, good evening to your listeners. Um, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for taking time out to join us. Before we get into, uh, you know, that rich well of ideas and uh, some of the things that uh, certainly in your or recently penned piece you speak about, um, I want us maybe to just take a quick step back uh, and talk about uh, not Sviso the Economist, but Usfiso, Usfiso. Um, you know, where... <laughs> Uh, where did Sviso grow up? What's uh, you know what motivations I guess uh, drove him ultimately when you think now in hindsight to uh, uh, this particular space, uh, not just in the world of agriculture but the public service, uh, and uh, because we also know you worked at the DPE at some stage, uh, and also your interest I guess in the world where public servanthood, uh, policy, and scholarship meet. Yes. No, Usfis, um, from being a head boy for so many years at a time, mm. so he wanted just to be as far as possible from home at the time. So that's why, um, yeah, I, I, I started in Stellenbosch. Um, um, cause my parents, especially my dad, is in the hospitality industry. So I, I grew up having a taste of, uh, he had a very acquired taste around these wines and whiskeys. So mm. I went to Stellenbosch to study wine. Um, so my junior degree is actually in winemaking. Um, okay. Towards the end of it, uh, bump into Prof. Mohamed Karan, the late Prof. Mohamed Karan. Mm. I don't know if you know him. Yes, he was you know in the planning commission. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So he was sort of like, yeah, no, why you want to make wine? If you can actually tell people how much it costs, so you don't have to <laughs> stack around in the wine farm. <laughs> so that's how I translated into economics, and then I started agricultural economics. I think the rest is really um, um, just continued to fully into economics, uh, formulated some love for trade. But I think for me what drives me most, um, having, I think, um, uh, from Mtubatuba Falls under Umkanyagute district. Mm. And I think Umkanyagute, uh, specifically Mtubatuba municipalities and the one that is close by Trozini, if I'm not mistaken, the latest household surveys, um, it's one, I think it's one of the top three, if not top two, after Angosa municipalities down in, in, in Eastern Cape. Cape. Mm. The, the poorest um, uh, locations in the country. Mm. So after really um, studying and understanding agricultural policies, understanding the food system, and every time when you go home, um, some um, some of the fellows you grew up with were not that privileged to at least get into the school system. You start then being inspired to say, how do you ensure that we're in your space of work? How do you ensure that you make those that are in the position to make policies and programs to uplift people out of poverty actually understand the realities on the ground. Because mm. I see it every time I go home. Uh, so basically poverty to me is not only a study of economics, but 
it's also a live experience that you see every time you visit. Sure, home. sure, sure. And and in many ways, I guess you know your earlier training and your undergraduate and the focus of much of your work since. Uh, has allowed you, uh, I guess, to better understand even uh, the underdevelopment of the places that uh, you have come from and uh, why Mtuba Tuba might be different, I guess, you know, so to some of the other parts of Guazul Natal where you might find commercial agriculture. Absolutely. And, and, and those are some of the things that are about Evangwa, where you grew up being a very vibrant commercial agriculture running the towns, mm. very beautiful infrastructure. And because in some of the way we have implemented our programs or some of the way we have changed the policies or reformed them, you see um, some of those ghost towns coming out now if you drive along those lines. And not only in KZN, um, um, across all the provinces that we visit them on almost every month in my line of work. Mm. So these are the kind of things that really makes you um, be inspired on a daily basis, but ensuring that you create things that can hopefully change on the ground. Mm, mm. Now, one of the things, I guess, uh, you know, that come with that duality we were talking about there, of uh, even the places that are becoming ghost towns that were commercial hubs of agriculture, uh, is this issue of, uh, you know, uh, food security. Now, I often, I'm, o- I'm often confused by this, right? We often say by production numbers, South Africa is a food, you know, self-sufficient country. And yet, if you go to some of the places that you've mentioned, uh, you know, Mduba and uh, Inguza Hill and many other places, you would find many a household that is food insecure. Uh, you know, the food doesn't reach right up until the end of the month when they get the grant uh, uh, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Is that, that clearly isn't a challenge, I guess, of production. The country clearly produces enough. It's a, a challenge one would think of uh, how what is produced is distributed and who gets to access it. You know, Awonga, I think, especially us, um, me and you and other colleagues of ours in the especially Pacific, mm. we, we often play around with these microeconomic numbers. Um, South Africa, is, uh, agriculture is the biggest employer, mm. um, holding about almost uh, um, over 5%, I think, of the total employment. We are net exporter. So those are all nice numbers, and it's true. It's not as if we quote these numbers because they're not correct. Statistics say release them on a daily basis. Um, and they reflect the nature of what you find there. But I think we often don't realize that the structure of the food system that we have mm. is, was at the time when it was at the peak and its design was not catered for servicing the entire South African society as we have it today. Mm. And, and when we made those numbers, like for example, South Africa is food security, um, which makes everyone to feel comfortable. And you're very right, it's not a function of production. I think it's a function of the structure and the conduct of the food system that we have. Sure, sure. We, we, when you look at all our food system, whether you are sitting in the free state, mm. where he has over 600 animals, live animals, but for him to be able to turn that animals into revenue or income, he will either have to sell them on the auction and those animals will have to be shipped up into Houghton because that's where the infrastructure is mm. um, and be conditioned so that it can enter into the market. So he's persistently in the lower uh, uh, parameter of the food chain because he doesn't have the million the structure and the infrastructure is not designed to do that. What's the point I'm trying to drive into? During the transition time in South Africa, especially in the agriculture, which is the period around 
1995 towards 1999, if I want to push it towards 2001. We made very good um, reforms, which really gave South African agriculture much viable as we have it today. But as we're doing that, we did not put safe mechanism in place that will ensure it increased the inclusivity and the transition and the integration of those that were that were legislatively and programmatically excluded into the formal agricultural region. And the, the, the impact of that is the, is the growing poverty and food insecurity that we see in the country today. And the food insecurity is the function not necessarily of production, as you correctly said earlier on. It's mostly a function of access and affordability thereof. Because the food and the, or the tomato that is sitting in a person who could have easily afforded it is sitting in them because it's coming from those areas. But because of the food value chain and the structure of it that it has to go through the um, complex um, uh, retail system that is also centralized, go through the distribution mm. centers, mm. end up putting a more cap of over 35%, which takes most of the population out of the out of, yeah. out of the population. And then there's the waste issue as well, Doc. I mean, uh, yep. just for me, it's mind-boggling. Produce enough, but also you waste a significant amount, and many people are still uh, stuck um, in great need uh, by the tail end of the month or just before the grants are paid out. Absolutely. The, the latest numbers put it at between 23 to 30% of the food that we, we are unable, uh, which is wasted um, and doesn't go in, into, 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 uh, into people's plates. So those are some of the inefficiencies that we currently have, which mm. really needs to be looked at it much closer. Sure, because sure. if we Doc, also um, shorten those Doctor, systems, sorry about that. So, sorry about that. Yeah. We, we, we need to go... As colors as a doll, I don't know if we're, you know, we're going to be getting some adverts. There's no good long apart, but uh, we need to go and quickly check uh, what's happening. Uh, and then when we come back, I want you to unpack, I guess, how we confront some of these inefficiencies. And uh, you're also suggesting that uh, there might be a role for public servants or people working in the public service who know a bit about policy to start producing some food themselves. It is indeed, and uh, 24 minutes it is now after 8 p.m. And uh, you tuned in to Metro FM Talk uh, here on the Mighty Metro. We're in conversation this evening uh, with our thought leader, Dr. Sviesson Dombella, Chief Economist at the National Agricultural Marketing Council. And uh, just talking, I guess, about uh, the production of food in our society and uh, some of the massive questions around how what is produced is distributed and why alongside so much abundance, uh, so much uh, abundance that some of it is wasted, uh, do some people still have challenges in meeting some of their food needs? Uh, you know, uh, uh, I just recall, I mean, a, a few days ago, uh, there was a big debate I was involved in around this issue of stunting, I mean, which happens, I guess, in the, in the first thousand days uh, for many young children, least of all in uh, many of the places that uh, the doctor was talking about. And a big driver of that is the absence of uh, the type of nutrition that children need uh, in those very early informative days. And uh, uh, Dr. Ndombele, you're saying a big part of this has to do with inefficiencies. How do we confront some of these in- inefficiencies from a distributional perspective so that we don't have the type of stunting, we don't have the type of uh, household food insecurity that we see in many parts? I, I think that, uh, there's a couple of... Um there's a couple of uh, interventions or areas or pressure points that we have to look at it. Um, I, I think one of the key things that we need to do, in my view, is to really rebuild the um, the knowledge of agriculture uh, and rebuild our agricultural colleges mm. um, and link them and even agricultural schools because they tend to provide practical agricultural solutions on the ground. 
that is also localized into that system. When you go to Fort Cox in the Eastern Cape, or you go to Sedara in 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 in, in KZN, and rebuilding that capacity and ensuring that we we also find correct people on those universities. One of the one of the areas which I'm actively involved is really rebuilding our profession and ensuring that we also close the gap between your former black universities and your mm. former white universities so that when you come in, you have a general knowledge that can be applicable and ensure that those provinces that have different commodities, they are able to access information at the local, at close, to, at close range um, for their producers and so forth. So um, we, we, as the vice president of Agriculture Economics Association, we really drive on that with universities to say, mm. let's close that relationship and that gap between the, the centers of knowledge generation with the farmer commodity association on the ground and also the departments of agriculture in those provinces so that people can easily access that information. Mm. I think that's the first one for me, access to information so that you really, because once you have uh, information access, you are, your decision-making process is enhanced. The second one, which I think we need to really rebuild, is those service centers that used to provide um, um, uh, uh, services into our rural areas and agricultural centers. So I'm talking about the, those service centers that used to provide your irrigation system, your inputs, mm. that used to be provided by your former corporate, uh, former farmer uh, corporates, which um, they currently are not in the system or in the in the manner that's supposed um, to work. So those are the key things for me. I think that we need to do. We should build with the infrastructure information. Once you have that in place, and also building up the state capacity then is to ensure that you increase access into the means of production, which is then land, water, um, technology, uh, as well as the market. Mm. So at a very broad level, I will lock it perhaps maybe oversimplifying it, but in those three pressure points that we have to look at them. Mm, mm. And of course, you're also suggesting in uh, one of your recently penned pieces that um, a big part of uh, this is also trying to attract many of those who've worked in the public service, uh, either in policy roles or as extension officers, uh, uh, providing some support to the sector, could potentially be drawn into the sector. And uh, maybe talk to us about, I guess, how uh, the early experiences in our post-democratic era of uh, some of those who worked in the former regime um, informed that particular view. I think one, what one was driving, um, uh, uh, which is very important, is that when we increasing, because during the transition um, into the democratic dispensation, um, almost um, 87% of the agricultural land was in the um, white population. So they've instituted a land reform, and I think every South African in this country is very much behind the land reform, with, despite all its challenges that it's facing. Mm. But I think what, with that piece, what one was trying to do is that we shouldn't only allow one entry point into the means of production, particularly if we say land as the main asset or factor, productive, factor production for agricultural growth. What, we, what I mean by that, our land reform program and policies are centered around focusing on three pillars. The one to restore injustice is due restitution, which um, tends to do very well in the rural areas and the township, and the tenure security, especially around the farming communities, mm. and agricultural um, production, which is around the uh, uh, redistribution pillar. And most of these pillars focus mainly on the poor, uh, marginalized communities and, and persons, which is um, fully um, justified and you should continue to do it. Actually, the state must upscale that. 
But what we're saying is, or one want to say is, you've got to be able also to allow those that are either in some form of uh, working place but have interest to go into agriculture because entering into agriculture is the most expensive uh, decision you can take. Land is very expensive to take. So allow those that have means so that it's either you blend and you de-risk their, um, their initial investment and you incentivize them to actually come in into the agricultural space and be able to produce. Because, you one, you'll be reducing the age gap because most of them, they tend to only get into the agriculture after they retired into the state. So you're perpetuating this old age generation of farmers. But if you can incentivize them to come them earlier, there's two biggest things that, in my view, you will be doing. Because they come in already with an experience, they still have the energy. But they also have the working capital because they've been saving either through their pensions or through mm. reporting funds. So they do have the working capital. So you also have a less risk of having new farmers that are dependent on government for grants. Mm. Because currently, most of the the latest analysis that we've done on the land that has been transferred by government to beneficiaries is that it's underperforming because mm. they don't have working capital to work the land that they've been provided mm. to. But if you then bring in people who have the working capital, given the state of our land bank in this case, they have a better chance of ensuring that the productivity of that land that they have and I wanted to come will be to maintained. That. I wanted to come to that because what you're suggesting here is that even in the case of the land bank, which is splitting up its portfolio into a commercial and a developmental one, which is the suggestion, I guess, being made by some creditors close to it, uh, that yes. that effectively could be able even to de-risk what might be that developmental book. Because as you're saying, many of them come in already liquid, you know, and uh, effectively, I guess, have some uh, a capital to deal with unforeseen, you know, uh, developments or even for working capital requirements. Uh, so, so effectively, that could also play a role, I guess, in de-risking even that developmental book uh, in that loan book if uh, you had a specific program dealing with some of these public servants. Absolutely. You, you, you're very right on that. Because you, you, you even assist the land bank to have a, a much higher re, uh, repayment rate of those mm. farmers that they have. Mm. Because they will have some liquid on them. But it also assists them that in land bank, you don't have to necessarily be locking all the loans coming from land bank in your fixed capital or in mm. your fixed assets such as land and farm infrastructure. Because they will have probably invested that money themselves into that fixed infrastructure. So you allow them to lend them to invest in other non uh, in variable uh, uh, such as those seasonal production um, uh, loans that they might need to just bump up their crop or to bump up their their their, 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 their farming operations, which in, in in essence it becomes then a win-win situation for the state because now it has a quality uh, cohort of farmers that it can fund such as the land bank, but themselves as well they are very energetic and they have the network that they've created because. Some of these guys, they have the network not only in the domestic markets, in the region and internationally. And they know how to navigate through the complexities of moving food around the country. So you have the people that can interpret the information, can interpret and basically have insight of also how the system works. So they have a better chance compared to other ones that are actually coming in at the at the lower um, capability of actually making it a success in the agrarian sector. So, but if you blend them, those two, then your food security agenda becomes a much more realistic one to achieve within a, a set time frame. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's interesting, I mean, that you raise these issues because I guess the other problem, if you speak, and let's talk about agro-processing just for a second, 
if you speak to any producer who is needing some raw product that comes from the agricultural sector it might be raw milk it might be you know a uh, 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 raw nuts or you know any other product that is then put into a processing operation many of those industrialists are suggesting that you know uh, scale is the name of the game they are in need if they are to expand even their own plants and operations and expand employment linked to that they they need new areas of production i mean i certainly know it's the case uh, for some in the dairy space in the eastern cape and uh, you know some producers even in the feed game who are saying if you can produce more of this yellow maize uh, then we potentially could give you offtake agreements and all manner of other things um in your view i mean have we considered that especially in what used to be the former homeland areas so wazulu siskai transkai you know kazankulu lebua venda uh, and all of those places where there is production happening but uh, one wonders whether it's happening on the scale that at least you know would allow for for some contest and competition in our food system not just at a retail level but even i guess where the processing and the milling is happening I think it's promoting and preserving. Mm. But I, I, I like the fact that you've mentioned some of those areas. Where, in, in, if you look um, in my area where I come from, in the northern part of the KZN, you used to have uh, one of the most um, profitable and really uh, a core of the economy in that area, which is Makatini Kotini Jin. And that has collapsed. But that allowed, because it was centralized um, in that area and it was localized to, for farmers, even if you were producing a cotton in, this, in, the, in, the, in the scale of 10 hectares, because you don't have transport cost, you were able to provide that into that, uh, into that cotton gene and still be able to survive and make profit. But all those have been uh, led to decay over the years. So now if you are a cotton farmer, you have to cater the transport uh, cost and cater for the scale so that you can be able to still transport it into breadth area where now the infrastructure is sitting. So I think it boils back to what I said earlier, um, um, I want to say, if we tend to plan the system where we still allow the large scale, um, the more complex and, and structured um, value chain system, that's still perfect. But also then when we localize this food system, because... If you are producing a dairy um, in, in East London, so all those farmers around there, if the dairy is there, you don't have to transport it into housing or into other areas, um, you could still provide a small scale. And that on its own becomes then the engine of the rural development because you are even bringing the communities in that, in that area. So um, I, I think for me, small-scale farming is still probably the best way that can ensure that the former rural areas or the former homelands has a better chance of actually uplifting and we even reverse this jobless migration from the rural areas mm. into the main cities. Sure. Because once you have those small retailers, if a retailer, which is an alternative route to market, that can be serviced by the local farmers, there's no need of having them big scale, because it's a small scale market that mm. is serviced in the community. Yes. And at the smaller scale, they can be able to be yeah. uh, self-sufficient. But we're seeing malls spring up all over the place. I mean, people are earning their social grants at the malls, you know, uh, contributing to the same mega food system you were talking about with long supply chains, distribution centers, and all of those things. Um, I mean, can can we compete with that? Least of all, you know, the link between where the money is received and where it is spent, which uh, seems, I guess, has effectively been closed as a loop by many of these uh, players and uh, the malls they operate from. I think if we decide so, 
Ivan, we can. I think if it decides mm. so, we can. Because sure. there are regulations that can allow us to do so. Yeah. You know, you, you, you separated between your agro-processing. There are some of those agro-processing that really requires heavy investment in infrastructure. Mm. But some of the things such as your fresh produce market, there's no reason why it shouldn't be put that they, they must be sourced in, the, in a certain kilometer radius, radius so that yeah. you uplift those, those producers. Mm. I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't ring fence that the tomatoes shouldn't be ex- imported by the retailers, even if they are in the mall or they're in the township or whatever the case may be that they must be only a source within the dedicated distance or 100 kilometer radius. Mm. So it doesn't come all the way up. So I think for me, it depends on the on the willingness and the appetite to ensure that you institute those. And they can coexist. I think that's the point I'm really trying to drive, that they can coexist. I don't think there's one system that is suitable, given the challenges and the transition period that we still have to do mm. to integrate those areas that were overlooked in terms of investment. Yeah. Dr. Ndombele, uh, yeah, I think we can continue uh, right up until the end of our show, but Abakashbam uh, won't allow that. So uh, we're going to have to leave it here. We're going to have to leave it here this evening. But I think that last comment uh, is certainly a very important one that uh, we must never feel hopeless and powerless when it comes to these things because, uh, you know, they are effective instruments that can allow for different types of market outcomes than the ones that we currently have now, which lead not just to inefficiencies, but to deep forms of injustice as well. And I want to thank you for taking time out to speak to us. Thank you so much, and thank you for the opportunity to come on. Dr. Sviso Ndombela is the Chief Economist at the National Agricultural Marketing Council. Yeah, speaking to us. Uh, yeah, and uh, of course also what's happening out uh, in the world of exchange and uh, some of the massive issues that we have in our food system and some of the opportunities as well and a uh, big part of that of course having to do with uh, yeah those big investors in uh, our economy uh, the nurses, the teachers, the police people and uh, yeah the extension officers and many other workers uh, who um, yeah on the back of uh, some of the investments during their working life uh, might uh, potentially be positioned to have a very good opportunity uh, to take a stab uh, at uh, agriculture. Do let us know some of your thoughts on that, and uh, we'll come back to those voice notes after this.